Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalist Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Bonus time to Ben Jarofsky show as I speak. It's Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023, a boiling hot day in the city of Chicago, and uh, things are getting a little hot under the collar for old Rudy Giuliani, Mayor Rudy Giuliani. He'll start with what's in the news today. So if you listen to this interview a year from now, you go, oh, that's what was going on back then. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, the former mayor of New York City, uh, was arraigned in Georgia for his part, his role uh, in the attempt by Donald John Trump uh, to engineer a coup uh, and have himself uh, proclaimed emperor of the United States. That's effectively what he would have been. He would have no longer been a president elected by the people. He would have been an emperor appointed uh, by his cronies and henchmen. Uh, and uh, so Fannie Willis, the prosecuting attorney in, uh, in the Atlanta area, has prosecuted Trump and about 18 of his cronies and conspirators on various counts of trying to sabotage the election, steal the election, pressure government officials in Georgia into throwing away votes that Biden got effectively and giving them to Donald Trump. It was just like a blatant, brazen attempt to have a coup. And we saw it, ladies and gentlemen. Don't pretend, MAGA, like you didn't see it. You saw it. You saw Donnie on the phone with the official Secretary of State in Georgia saying, throw away those votes. Don't deny it, MAGA. You're in this, having this moment of denial. Could you imagine how outraged MAGA would be if instead of Donnie Trump on the phone with the Secretary of State, in Georgia, it was, let's just think of this, Michael Joseph Madigan here in Illinois on the phone with Jesse White, Secretary of State. Hey, Jesse White, let's throw out the votes I need <laughs> to have my gubernatorial candidate elected governor of the state of Illinois. Anyway, so uh, Rudy Giuliani, former mayor of New York, uh, was arraigned today, and here is his photo. I'm going to show it to my distinguished guest. I don't know if she can see it. Uh, but he's trying to look all glum and defiant. I'm not afraid. Rudy Giuliani, how far you have fallen. All right, without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce yourself, and then we're going to have a conversation on something having absolutely nothing to do with what I just spend two minutes talking about. Distinguished guest, 
introduce yourself. Hey, everyone. My name is Edna Navarro Vidaure, and I am the regional council manager uh, for Birth to Five Illinois Region 1A, City of Chicago. I am a mama four. I'm a former early childhood teacher, uh, both in public school system here in Chicago and our community-based programs. I'm a community organizer, and I am an early childhood advocate. And she's also, let me just say this, uh, was sort of an assistant coach on uh, this powerful uh, baseball team that I coached with her father many years ago. I met Edna a long time ago, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, but she was a baby back then, okay? So she's a lot younger than me. Uh, she was the mom of Lexi, who played with my youngest daughter, Rachel, way, way back. They played hardball, not softball. Right, Edna? Hardball. Right. Hardball. <laughs> so we had, like, the girls' team. Uh, there were five girls or six girls on that team, and they wanted to be together, and they were together for a long time. So I've known Edna for a while, but watching your career, Edna. Uh and uh, school year has begun, uh, and once again, people are extolling the virtues of early childhood education because, how do I put this, there are certain advantages that kids like Lexi and Rachel have uh, over a lot of other kids, and that they have parents read to them, or they uh, uh, are gone to the the library at a very early age to have reading programs to them, or maybe they go, they start on their own in um, early childhood uh, classrooms and when they're as young as one or two, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, not all kids have those advantages that uh, Lexi and Rachel had. Uh, and you are made it your career to sort of even things out. I guess that's how I would look at it. You think that's a fair statement, Edna, for what you've been doing with your career? That's a fair yeah. statement. All yep. right. Why don't you explain why it is so important, in your humble opinion, uh, that children start to learn to read uh, and just learn uh, the basics of uh, education as early as they can? Well, Ben, as you know, now that you're a grandpa, right, you are you are out uh, you are looking at, you know, kind of the from the outside in uh, and seeing how. Um, not only your daughter, but kids, you know, around the city and state really are having to navigate the different systems uh, to try to get access uh, to childcare, uh, to try to get access to early, high quality early learning programs. Um, and um, many of the times, like, you know, from, from what we have in Chicago, we've got about 193,000 kids uh, in the city of Chicago um, that are under the age of six. Uh, approximately 52,261 children um, under the, you know, sort of between birth to, to five um, do not have access to a publicly funded early childhood spot. Um, and they are eligible for that. Um, and yet we don't have spots. And, and what does that mean, right? What does the impact mean? Um, we know through the pandemic um, when, you know, a lot of programs shut down and, um, there was a lot of impacts uh, that that caused um, from families. We're hearing now, right? Like they, you know, their their development, um, speech wise, social emotional wise, uh, those things had been impacted um, during the pandemic. Um, not only on the child aspect too, but families, right? Like were impacted as far as like, so where do I take my child? I've got to go to work. I'm an essential employee. What what do I do, right? Um, not only that, but our our workforce as well. 
um, you know, we're expected to show up every day. Um, and they're probably one of our lowest paid, um, uh, you know, essential workers, um, who really, um, impact, right. Like the business aspect. Um, and so, you know, the, the social development, the brain development, um, the physical development, all of that gets impacted, um, you know, based on, uh, the, the foundation from the family and in partnership with, with early childhood, um, programs. So, so we, uh, as a, as a city and as a state have made it our, uh, our business, uh, to really center family and communities to understand what experiences they're having, what barriers they're experiencing, um, and really give that platform for them to inform what, what kind of improvements would help, uh, make things better. Um, again, you know, the folks at the, you know, at the, at the state level, uh, may, with good intention, uh, may design policies and funding, but they may not match at the local level. Right. And so we're, we're here, we're a platform to hear from families and communities about what they need most, um, and have taken the past year to, to really dig deep, to find out what, what, you know, solutions we could come up with and really, um, through collective work with various partners, um, roll up our sleeves and figure out where we can get some small wins, uh, and then figure out long-term, what do we need? Uh, how many children? I missed that number. You said there's about 193,000 children under the age of six, uh, in the city of Chicago about, and then you had a number do not have access to publicly uh, funded educational spots. What number was it? Did you say that was 52,261. Wow. Children, between birth to age five who do not have access to publicly funded programs. And uh, so what are those kids doing? That's what we're trying to figure out. Um, what we're hearing is uh, a lot of, you know, the, the way that uh, families are working are non-traditional hours, uh, non-traditional schedules uh, in, in all kinds of different work. And so many of them, uh, from what we hear, are leveraging family, friend, and neighbor care. Uh, many of them are making a choice not to work and wait until the kids go into kindergarten because they know for sure somebody's got it. You know, at that point, somebody's got to take them. Um, uh, many uh, families are, um, you know, uh, at, trying to access the the child childcare programs, home visiting programs, prevention initiative programs, preschool for all programs. There's, I mean, there's a wealth of you know, that's one thing Chicago has is they, we have a lot of different programs. Um, but as they're trying to access them, they're still having uh, uh, a hard time trying to navigate it. Cause in a way you kind of, what we heard from providers is you've got to be kind of this unicorn family um, because they look at different eligibility criteria to enter these pro publicly funded programs. And, and if you don't meet some of the criteria or you're over a dollar uh, because maybe you just got a raise, uh, you don't you don't qualify for these programs, and so again, um, many families are keeping their kids at home, or they have family friend and neighbor care, center based care, um, and then um, yeah, it's just it's been a patchwork of of families trying to figure out what to do with their children. Is there uh, what's the difference between? It's been so long since I uh, had kids. I mean, it's been a long time, and I'm like, oh, damn, how much did it cost back in the day? I can't remember. <laughs> We're talking about the uh, '90s, uh, early '90s, is that? Uh, so, what's the difference between getting uh, funded 
for early childhood and having to pay out of your pocket? So I would say there's there's kind of two different buckets, if you will, that the the programs kind of get classified in, at least at the data level, uh, is childcare programs, um, which families can apply um, through the state's childcare assistance program. Uh, of course, that's all based on income, but that's really open to families who are working, families who are going back to school. Um, even right now, they have an opportunity that if you're looking for a job, because they know, again, pandemic, you know, put a lot of people out, out of work. Um, for three months, you can get free child care um, and as a way of helping to support that, right? So you've got to qualify for this for that program. Um, then when we talk about publicly funded programs, as I mentioned, we've got, you know, um, stuff that comes from the feds, stuff that comes, programs that come from the state, like home visiting, like early Head Start, Head Start, uh, preschool for all. Uh, again, just a mirror of, of, of uh, programs. And so most of those, again, families have to apply for. There's certain cri criteria that they look for besides income. Um, they do try to recruit families who are, uh, you know, being led by, by youth, like teens, um, families who have children with special needs, uh, families who, who may be experiencing the child welfare system, right, may have foster children, um, uh, families who uh, speak another language other than English, right? Um, and so there, there's different criteria that makes them sort of categorically eligible. Um, but on top of that, there's, there's income and other sort of criteria that you have to meet in order to get these programs. I would make the argument and feel free to vehemently disagree with me if, if you do. I would make the argument that child early childhood education just be free across the board and that there should be no forms to fill out, no elig income eligibility requirements. It should be like Social Security, where everybody gets it no matter how wealthy you are. And here's why I make the argument. It's the same argument uh, for Social Security. Uh, if you make it, uh, openly open to absolutely everyone without any documents to fill out uh, other than just the, you know, the basics, what's your name, what's your social security cut number, you know, the emergency information, that kind of thing. Um, there's f far fewer impediments to parents, or grandparents, whoever's in charge enrolling. There's no thought that, Oh my God, the government's going to be looking at my, you know, my bank book, they're going to be looking at my income statement, my my uh, earnings or anything like that. It's just, no, this is, uh, we have decided as a society, it's in our best interest to make sure that all children are educated or have a, a good shot at getting an education so they're not lagging behind or they're not lagging behind as much when they enter school. We have decided that's in the best needs of society. And so we're going to eliminate absolutely any kind of requirements uh, whatsoever. I would make that. In fact, I'll go one step further, and you may disagree. I believe like anybody who lives in this country should be have access to it. So MAGA is going to get mad at me, but asylum seekers, come on in, and here you go. That's what a benevolent society does, and that's what a society that is really cares about its children does. And I just think that's what a civilized society should do. That's my position. What's your response? You nailed it. I mean, honestly, like that, that's it. Right. And, and that's what came out from families, right? Like if you want us to be productive citizens in this city, in this state, in this country, we need access to childcare. 
Um, we need access to high quality childcare. Um, not only that, but you know, that in Chicago, right, we've got what they call UPK, right? Universal pre-K. And so there is, there's been an attempt, right. Um, to make sure that every four-year-old has, uh, access to a preschool slot. Um, I'm sure there's models that we can look at to, to mirror that. But I think to your point, Ben, it's, we, we definitely have to take a stand, not only, um, uh, you know, by saying it, but we've got to actually put the budget and policies behind it. Well, I think it should probably be federally funded uh, and every, it should be the same way across the state. I do not understand. How do I put this? And so I've had many people tell me this. They'll be like, I don't want to have to pay for some other kid to go to school. You know, I, I feel that's an imposition. I don't want to have to pay for it. And I'm like, you know, already you're paying for all kinds of things that you don't even think twice about. Like every Lincoln Yards, <laughs> you're paying for that. You're paying for some upscale development. God, it doesn't help you at all. But this is literally helping someone to, perhaps from going astray, you know, to becoming a productive citizen. I would call it. I mean, it's our society, right? It's, it's exactly an investment, right? And so there's been a lot of research that has showed, right? Like if we invest, you know, for every dollar you invest in, a, in early childhood education, you get $7 like return on investment, right? And, and so again, you know, this, this is, uh, I think we can say it. I think we've got to roll up our sleeves and take some action. And I think that that's, what's exciting right now, because, um, you know, at least as a state, um, we have these, these, you know, 39 regions across the state of Illinois who are leading the same work that I'm leading here in Chicago. Um, we are really hearing from families and community leaders um, what, what their needs are and what's kind of getting in the way of that. Um, and, you know, uh, I think that there's a lot of uh, momentum, if you will, to really uh, roll up our sleeves and, and not only talk about it, but actually take action. And so we're really excited because we just published this uh 47 page report, uh, regional needs assessment. Uh, and, you know, for folks who are interested in digging into the details, um, they can, there's a lot of data in there, but not only is this like sort of numerical data, but it's the qualitative piece, right? You really want to hear the stories uh, from the, from the children's uh, families and from community leaders. Um, and, and I think that this is a, again, I think it's a great opportunity right now to, to roll up our sleeves and take some action. Do you find any um, uh, pushback from families themselves? Have you ever encountered families who don't want, for whatever reason, I can't imagine any, but I'm just trying to think of the possible objections they might have uh, to bringing their child or their grandchild or what have you uh, into a classroom. They, they worried uh, about what, how the kid might be taught or for whatever reason, they're not ready to, to expose their kid to education. Have you found any resistance like that? No, because I think, you know, I think the messaging it feels like in Chicago is uh, families have a choice as far as how they want to engage in the educational system. Again, you know, we've got home visiting programs where, 
you've got programs that come into the home and show, you know, kind of coach, right? They're that, they're that coach that's, you know, you always talk about, oh, well, you know, your kids didn't come with a manual, right? Like I, we're just trying to figure this out together, right? And so we've, we've got programs that will come in and, and coach families and, and model, right? Like what those interactions should be like. And so I, I say that because um, I feel that families know that they're their, their child's first teacher, um, and in Chicago, we've got a wealth of programs that support that, that family's, um, engagement into the educational system. And, I, you know, I think earlier you mentioned too, like, what else are families doing? Families go to the library, families go to the park districts, families go to, we've got a wealth of, of opportunities and resources in Chicago. And so there is a fit for every family. Um, and, and I don't, I don't think that we have encountered resistance, um, because families have a choice in how they want to engage in the system, um, you know, and, and even beyond kindergarten, kindergarten, right? We know that we've got public school system, we've got private schools, we've got independence, we've got homeschools, right? And so we've got a whole bunch of uh, of options. And so that's why I, I feel like, and we respect families' choices. And so the, I think that's why we haven't met resistance. And we're just really trying to understand what their experiences have been. What does the, in your opinion, the ideal size of, of a classroom for early childhood? Um, so I think that they are, uh, there's differences in, in sort of like a school-based classroom and a, and a center-based classroom. And then you talk about your home, you know, your, your licensed home providers. Um, they, they have ratios that they, that they follow. Um, I've, I've been in all of those, you know, settings. So, so I can, I can speak from, um, from experience, right? Obviously the, the smaller the class size, the better, the more attention that your children have, um, as an extension of your family. Right. And so when I was in, um, a school-based setting, we, you know, we had 20 children, but that was a teacher with a teacher assistant. Right. Uh, when I was in a childcare program, we probably had about, uh, 12 children, but again, that depended on the age, right. So the smaller the child, the less amount of children you're able to have within the classroom. Um, and so then, you know, uh, that I think also informs like program um, operations and staffing, uh, which basically equals out to money, right? And then same thing with the homes, right? When you are using a, a licensed home provider, they also have uh, different ratios that, that they have to follow. And then again, the, the more children you, you accept, the more staffing that you need. Um, for that, for that, uh, for that experience. And uh, so, what's the difference between a uh, school-based setting and a center-based setting? So, uh, I will speak from my experience, right? Uh, as a former uh, Chicago public school teacher, um, we run a you know preschool for all program, um, and so ideally, right? Like it's, it's mostly like the funding where it comes from because the, the state standards, the teacher qualifications, um, what the expectations are, are, are exactly the same as our community-based programs. Um, our community-based programs may run uh, preschool for all, may run Head Start, may run prevention initiative, may run home visiting. They run a myriad of, of programs. Um, and so I would say that there's probably more options in a community-based program than in a school program. And not only that, but the school program, um, you know, it runs as a school year and a school, you know, school day, uh, whereas the community-based programs are, are more of a year-round, longer um, day, which helps uh, families who are, you know, uh, working uh, during the day.
what kind of uh, socialization skills? I'm not thinking so much of um, learning to read or math skills, but I'm talking more like socialization skills. Do you think uh, children should be learning when they're in this early childhood setting? Well, again, I, I say the interactions that they're learning from their family units, right, is, is primary. Um, and when they go into uh, early learning and care programs, uh, they're using the skills that they've learned from their family, right, to really uh, then start to those interactions uh, within the programs, right? And so, again, the social-emotional learning aspect of it is, is huge. Uh, and, again, it's, it's in either of the settings. Um, and so that is one thing I think that... Um, <sighs> Families have reported from the pandemic that their that their children, you know, uh, that it impacted them negatively. Right? They weren't able to have those interactions. Um, they weren't able to, you know, even as simple as like looking at your mouth for for enunciation. Uh, they're finding a lot of families, their children have have speech um, delays. Um, that socialization piece, their the interaction outside of their family unit uh, with kids their own age, right, has been impacted as well. And so, I mean, it is. As a teacher, I would always hear that if your if your child right comes in and is able to interact and is able to you know uh, play with others, listen to others, you know um, manage their emotions, like we can teach them how to read and write and all of that, right? But I, I think it's that social emotional learning that that is that is probably most important. So what do you mean, like play with others? Not like let somebody else get the toy, share the toy. Is that what you're talking about? I mean, give me some examples like playing with others at early age. Yeah, I mean, that's it, right? Having interaction like you and I are having, right? Uh, interchanging objects. And I think the developmental is different at age three than age four than age one, right? And so making sure that your programs have high quality staffing to support that development it is critical, right? And so um, one of the things that the state is asking us uh, to expand our work in is in the mental health field um, because a lot of families, again, have reported that because of the pandemic, um, not only are children or families and providers um, uh, impacted it, you know, by by just the shutdown, but um, it really took a toll on, on mental health and, and, and behavioral health. Um, and so, again, that just tells you kind of how critical um, this work really is. What, what, what was the impact? Like, give me an example of the mental health uh breakdown because of the pandemic? Yeah. So I would say, I'll tell you from a family perspective, right, as they were just trying to navigate survival, right, in some of our uh, communities in the city of Chicago, um, it wasn't only just keeping a job, keeping house, you know, keeping food on the table, keeping a roof over your head. But when they had children who were experiencing delays, they had no outlet to help them navigate all of these different systems to try to get services for their children. And so families said like, I, I felt like I was losing it and I, and I may have lost it and I needed to really keep it together. And I didn't have anybody to talk to. I didn't have anybody to support me as my children were looking for me to me to make sure that they were being um, provided, you know, not only basic supports, but, but really some of these, some of these additional uh, supports in the case of uh, families with children uh, with disabilities or diverse learners. And so that's just one example that that we heard. Um, and again, that, that limits, right, the interactions that they may have with their children. And so it just becomes like a like this ripple effect. Yeah. Is there um, a concern in Chicago? You're concentrated in Chicago, but is there, con- 
Is there a concern like maybe a school setting is too radical uh, for my child? And I'm thinking now of the fight that's going on in so many schools and in libraries uh, in uh, throughout the country where MAGA groups are sort of trying to uh, get curriculum changes that they don't mention gays or uh, they talk about uh, black history in, in a way that uh, doesn't mention slavery and so forth. Is that kind of ideological fight also happening as early as early childhood? Um, I have, in the engagements that I've had, I have not been, uh, that information has not been shared. And I, and I think though, I think there's a really good reason why I think it's because we are really centering children and family, um, who, um, are from uninvested communities who are our brown and black children and their families, right. Who have been marginalized, um, historically. Right. And so, we are definitely not, you know, have not, at least within this past year, have not heard that. Um, but we are really centering family and community voice um, uh, and, and focused on, on racial equity. And so um, we, we have not to this point heard that, um, and especially at this level have not heard that. Um, but what we have heard, right, is from families saying, like, as we look at, like, the demographics, right? Like the, the diversity and the segregation in the city of Chicago, like they realize, like, Hey, like I've lived this day in and day out, but you're showing me a map where this, you know, where the populations are. And like, we can't argue with the disinvestment. We can't argue with the mismatch between policy funding and resources. And what do we do urgently to write, to write the way. Right. And so that's really what we're hearing is, how do we um, address, how do we identify and address the inequities that are happening um, within the city of Chicago? And it starts from, from birth. Yeah, in a perfect world, Edna, in an ideal world, uh, when do you think a children would start school uh, and would it be required of all children? Go ahead. So in an ideal world, it is important to give families their choice of what and how they want to engage uh, within our educational system. Um, I would say uh, the family is the foundation for uh, our, our educational uh, experiences. And there is not to me a, a particular time because it, it, hap- it starts at, it starts, you know, uh, from pregnancy. Um, and so I think it's what's important to call out is that families feel like they have a choice, that families feel that they're supported. Um, that families feel that they have a voice where if they're experiencing inequities and they're not able to get the resources that they need for their children, that they have that voice to advocate and actually make change. And so, so you know, I wouldn't say that there's a perfect uh, uh, model or a perfect uh, place uh, kids should, should be learning. I think they're learning from the time they enter their family, right, uh, in utero, Uh I'm sure <laughs> I'm just, I remember when my, my husband was singing in my belly. Right. And so again, it starts, it starts in utero. And so um, I, I just think it's really making sure that families know that they're supported, that they have a voice, that they're able to actually impact change um, and that they're able to advocate for what their children need, but it's also exhausting. And so why not just, like you said, like make everything accessible there's nothing to sign up for, you know, it's just like, let's do that. And then we can focus on some other stuff, right? Uh, Cause everybody has that potential. Everybody has the potential. Um, but you know, 
structural racism, institutional racism. There's all these things that kind of get in this way. And, and so we want to give families that voice to, to make sure that they're, they're getting what they need. I'm with you hundred percent on that one. And, uh, you know, I, I, and I, and I, and I don't think you have to go to a classroom setting, by the way, I, I do believe, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not doctrinaire and I want like the, the, the people who live, my neighbors just down the street from me, uh, homeschooled, they do a fantastic job with their kids. Kids are so freaking smart. Uh, and then, well, the mom is a, a teacher, so I mean, I guess she's skilled at it. Um, so I don't mean to say that every kid has to go to a, a classroom, but what I am saying is that the structure of a classroom at an early age where a, a kid is exposed to books and just the concept of turning the page and absorbing the information that's on the page uh, and interacting with an adult in sort of a directed manner, I just, it's so, it's, it's just so fundamental to that kid's ability to hit the ground running when he or she goes to kindergarten. And I got news for you. And I know you know this. Like 90%, I don't know what the percentage is, but upper income families are exposing their kids. They're like, to them, it's like a competition. They're getting ready for that first third kindergarten. You know this, Edna. And it's like if the rest of the kids aren't getting their preparation, they start behind, and you, it's really hard to catch up. You follow me, Edna? And I just don't think that's healthy for society uh, in any way to have that kind of discrepancy. That's how I view it. Well, and, and I do want to add to, right, like um, our, our multilingual learners, our English language learners, what we know is um, – that with right the the early childhood education and experiences and, and high quality programs actually surpass our monolingual children like like they just kind of leave them behind right and so not only is like you're saying like this this monetary investment but it's just this linguistic investment right the social emotional investment recognizing people's cultures and 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 appreciating that right like there's a lot of richness to that that there's no dollar amount for that um but to your point is if we're not setting up our families and our communities uh and our children for success they're already showing up to kindergarten behind it uh, so why don't you get one last time information about, uh, your organization, anybody wants more information, how they can get in touch with you, that good stuff. Go ahead. Yes. So again, uh, my name is Edna Navarro Vidaure. I am the regional council manager for birth to five Illinois region one a, uh, that is Chicago. And, um, we are at, we actually have a physical location. Uh, we co-locate within the within a Wick grocery store. We did that on purpose. Um, we are over uh, in the Logan Square area over at Armitage and Kedzie. And um, the way that you can find us is so we're at 3110 West Armitage. Uh, we are also online at Birth to Five Illinois uh, Region 1A. And we're also on Facebook. Same thing. Um, and so we are uh, a small but mighty team, but we cover the entire city and we really are, uh, everywhere across the city. So in person, virtually, wherever you find it, want us, we'll be there. Very good. All right, coach Edna. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you, grandpa Jarofsky. Take care. <laughs>